in a lot of cases, you know, people want to stay as close to their homes as possible because they always want to go home. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to be a refugee and I want to be a refugee for decades. Hello, and welcome back to the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. My name is Michelle Sicard, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Nicole Rivas. In today's episode, we'll discuss the current Ukrainian refugee crisis that resulted in light of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. We will dive into the role of the United Nations High Commissioner on Refugees, or UNHCR, in the Ukrainian conflict. What are some of the key methods that are currently being implemented for Ukrainian refugees, particularly across Europe? How has this international agency relieved the effects of the ongoing crisis? And how may may their response create an avenue for change in future conflicts? Here to answer our questions is Mr. Errol Yaiboke. Errol Yaboke is a senior fellow with the International Security Program and director of the Project on Fragility and Mobility at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. He has long-term field experience working for organizations in Iraq, Afghanistan, South Sudan, and the Somali region of Ethiopia. Thank you, Errol, for joining us today. It's great to be here. Okay, perfect. So to start, could you start by explaining the situation of Ukrainian refugees right now? What has led to more than 1.5 million people becoming internally displaced? And how has the state responded? Yeah, it's, you know, by the time that this podcast come out, these numbers will be obsolete. Um, And that's just goes to show kind of the gravity of the situation. Um, People already... You mentioned 1.5. Already over 3 million people have actually left Ukraine and thus are sort of qualifying for refugee status. And then there's an additional who knows how many million that are internally displaced. These are people that, for example, might have been in Mariupol. And once the bombing started, they got on a train and tried to get to Lviv or someplace like that. Um, and and I think that's it, it was sort of predictable in a way um, that this would happen if there was actually a full-blown war. I think lots of analysts, myself included, um, were not necessarily expecting or, or were still a little bit caught off guard by just the terribleness of the attacks and the indiscriminate nature of the bombings in particular. Yesterday, there was a bombing of a theater in Mariupol that um, they had even written outside so that it was viewable by satellite and by plane, you know, that there are children in here and and that uh, location got bombed. And so when, when you have just absolute terror like that, um, you're going to see large numbers of people feeling like they can't, they can't live like that. Um, you know, literally cannot live, like are at risk of dying, but also, you know, there's only so long that you can live in a bomb shelter, especially if you've got little kids or, you know, other folks that need support. And so I think those are the types of reasons why people are are leaving. And and honestly, they're going to wherever they can find safety at this point. Now, I agree. And this conflict involves um, attacks coming from three different fronts. So how do you believe that this has changed the migration paths of refugees? 
refugees and the common obstacles that refugees face in leaving the country? Yeah, I mean, when when someone is forced from home by conflict, as I mentioned, they, they go wherever they feel safe. Um, and sometimes that's the next town over. Um, in a lot of cases, you know, people want to stay as close to their homes as possible because they always want to go home. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to be a refugee and I want to be a refugee for decades. Um, so people are always trying to stay as close as they can to home, but then the three front attack that you mentioned, and now there's you know, increased uh, bombings even in the Western parts of, of Ukraine has meant that there's really only one place that a lot of folks can go. And that's to the West. Ukraine is a huge country. It's a beautiful country. It's a huge country. And, you know, Russia had already had a presence in troop, pr- troop presence, both sort of direct and proxy troop presence in the East, in the Donbass region and in Crimea. And so it was kind of, you know, obvious that they would use that, you know, toehold that they had to to move further into Ukraine. But, you know, we had thought maybe that they would also target Kyiv um, and thus come from the north, even from Belarus, which is essentially a vassal state of Russia at this point. Um, and then... You know, so that you're sort of surrounding on three sides. And, and really, if you just look at a map, there's only one place that people can go. And that's why Lviv, the largest city in the western part of Ukraine, has really become kind of this place for for Ukrainians to try to find refuge. And from there, uh, it's it's not too far to the Polish border and so as as long as um, Poland and you know other uh, neighbors around Ukraine have their their doors open to Ukrainians, uh, I anticipate folks still trying to to find safety there because because even in Lviv, uh, there's just not uh, not safety and security. Right. And as you mentioned, these this number of refugees keeps rising and there's recently there's been great mention obviously of humanitarian organizations uh, being involved in this conflict specifically the United Nations High Commissioner on Refugees or the UNHCR um, and like in the past weeks we've seen a significant amount of donations um, going their way so I, I was wondering if you could provide a brief history for our listeners on the foundation of the UNHCR what led to essentially what led to the UN deciding, it was necessary to form an entire separate platform for helping refugees. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up UNHCR. And it's it's funny because that's one of those acronyms where people are like, wait, what? What is that? What's a high commissioner? And so a, a few years ago, friends and colleagues at UNHCR made the decision to, they just wanted to be called the UN Refugee Agency, which is really what they are. They are technically, in terms of like their charter, they are the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, but I will call them the UN Refugee Agency in part because that's what they want to be called. Um, and and to be clear, I get my daily figures from the UN Refugee Agency, from HCR's website. They have a great um, thing uh, called the uh, Operational Data Portal, uh, 
for the UK, Ukraine refugee situation. And they basically show, I'm looking at it in real time right now, and there's 3,169,000 Ukrainians who have left the country. And they even tell you where they have gone, uh, Poland, Romania, Moldova being the, the top three. And they have that level of granularity in their data because when folks come across those international borders, there, there are actually places for people to go and register. And it's important that they register, not just so that people like me have access to data, but it's, it's so that they then register for housing support. They register for food aid if they need it, and they can put their kids in school. They also get into the system if they want to be in the system for resettlement to a third country. And uh, I think now it's it's important that they register because they can also, at least those who have arrived in uh, European Union countries like Poland and Slovakia and Hungary, have some eligibility to move uh, further into the European Union. So that's they're a really critical organization. They are part of the United Nations, so they're not a... They're not a nonprofit. They're not a non-governmental organization. This is an intergovernmental organization. And they were founded in 1950. Because if you think about what was going on in 1950, you really had kind of the lingering effects of World War II. Um, I mean, when you see the devastation in Kiev and Kharkiv and, and Mariupol, um, it's hard not to think about the devastation that was across Western Europe. Um in in the aftermath of of world war ii and of course that devastation forced millions and millions of people from home and so there was a group called the international refugee organization that was founded even before unhcr but in 1950 um it was like okay we need to create an organization that's part of this new united nations thing that we are that we have just set up um and it needs to have a mandate to provide assistance to people who are forcibly displaced. Most of those people were Europeans. Um, and they were Germans and, and French and Hungarians. Um, and they, the, it, when they first founded, they were, you know, they would set up refugee camps and they would provide food assistance. And, you know, uh, a lot of their goal was to to resettle Germans and Italians and French and other people to third countries, including the United States. And it's it's interesting to note. I mean, that HCR just celebrated their seventieth anniversary, and celebrated is a weird word um, because it's it's this is one of those organizations that you wish didn't have to exist, but they've been around for seventy years because they. In 1950, they had a three-year mandate. It was like, we're going to provide support to these people for three years. And then after that, we will solve the problem and we can all go home. Well, shortly thereafter, there was a revolution in hung in Hungary that forced 200,000 people from home. And then as uh, sort of the decolonization movement happened, the independence movement across Africa really picked up steam. There were sort of like independence related conflicts that forced millions and millions of other people from home. And, and 70 years later, we've still got 
a UN refugee agency that um, sadly is having to provide support for more and more people every year. Right. Thank you, Arrow. And you mentioned um, their contribution in data collection and resettlement. But other than this, what role has um, the UN refugee agency played in this specific conflict in Ukraine? What contributions from the international organization have proved the most effective in your eyes? I mean, it's hard to uh, it's hard to overestimate the importance of actually having the good data. So I know I mentioned it almost in passing before, but that's really important. Again, not just for like you know DC-based think tankers, but it's important so that all of those resources, all that money that's coming in, can be allocated to where it needs to go. Right. So of the 3.1 million refugees, Ukrainian refugees right now, uh, almost 2 million of those are in Poland. Right. So a lot of assistance is going to Poland. A lot of assistance is going to Romania, which is the second most. Um, And a lot of assistance is going to the other places and that are that are uh, receiving these Ukrainian refugees. And so that's, I think, first and foremost, that's like the first thing that happens is they register people. And then if you imagine kind of like a, a, a building where people were Ukrainian refugees, you know, they've got a couple of, you know, bags with them or whatever. They walk into this building and they, they register with these, you know, nice, sometimes volunteers, sometimes UNHCR staff. And then there's a there's sort of a process of, of triaging that happens. It's like, what types of protection do you need? Protection is a very specific word that is used within the UN system. Um, you know, are you LGBTQ? Are you, you know, uh, uh, unaccompanied minor? Are you, you know, do you have some sort of health concerns? Right. And, and so they figure out what types of assistance, what types of protection are most needed, and then they figure out ways to, to provide that. And so this is sort of soup to nuts what they do um sort of everything that it that those people need in the immediate term right now like nobody again nobody wakes up in the morning and says i want to be a refugee in part because even with the assistance of the unhcr they're not getting everything that they need right they're they're sort of able to subsist and in some cases HCR can work with non-governmental organizations and other organizations to, you know, get kids in school and they can set up things like refugee camps. You know, it's, it's worth noting that we think of refugees as like being in camps, like that's sort of the mental image that we have. Um, that's, you know, Rohingya in Bangladesh, largest refugee camp in the world, um, Somalis in Kenya, you know, huge kukuma, et cetera. Um, but that's actually not what not what's happening with Ukrainians, right? Like there, there's an effort to to sort of you know find places for them in apartments and school buildings and other sort of existing structures. Um, and I don't know how that's going to change over time, but I think this is this is sort of the future of protection and assistance to forced displacement is not, you know, sort of putting people in camps like we did starting in 1950. It's, it's, um, 
you know, trying to find more durable, longer term solutions for people. Because the reality is, as much as people want to go home, protracted displacement is the new norm. Could you explain a little bit for our listeners um, what we hear this talk about humanitarian quarters um, and protracted displacement, what these terms mean and how they have played out in the Ukrainian crises? Sure. I mean, humanitarian corridors are, it's it's sort of a wonky way of saying like, can we just get humanitarian assistance in to people who need it? And in places like Poland and Slovakia and Hungary and Romania, it's easy to get assistance in those places because there's not active conflict in those places, right? So you can, um, a lot of times it's like, purchased on the local market, whether it's food or non-food items, you know, medicine, et cetera, you can go to a, you know, Romanian, um, distributor and sort of purchase from them and then provide to the refugees and to their host communities. When you're, when you're talking about Ukraine and when there's sort of active conflict, um, there's not like, there's not sort of a, a Ukrainian economy from which things can be sourced right now. And so everything has to be brought in. And most of it's being brought in from places like Poland uh, that that are on the western border with Ukraine. And, and so to get those goods in, you kind of need kind of a safe space for the trucks and the trains. You know, you don't want those uh, those sort of logistics um, the people that are moving stuff, uh, you don't want them to be targeted. Right. And so humanitarian agencies always talk about things like humanitarian quarters because people in Kiev and Kharkiv in Mariupol and, and across the country need humanitarian assistance, but it, you can't get it in if those people providing the assistance are, uh, themselves targeted, right? And so you need these corridors. Now, corridors have also been um, used as as sort of a way of securing ceasefires. Um, and so there's sort of broader kind of war-related reasons to do this. Um, we've, for example, in, um, in, in some past conflicts, there's been like, hey, wait, let's all pause so that we can get everybody vaccinated against polio. Or like, hey, let's pause so everybody can get a COVID shot or something. Like these are things that happen um, and it's sort of related to this idea of humanitarian corridors. Um, protracted displacement is a wonky way of saying despite when, you know, people become refugees, they, they ha- are forced to leave home and forced to leave their country and thus, you know, become refugees. Um, they, a lot of those folks want to go home. The problem is, even if they wanted to go home, it's not safe to go home right now in Ukraine, obviously, but even if um, the bullets stop flying and the and the bombs stop raining down from the sky today, which, God, I hope it does. It's not going to, unfortunately, but let's say that that does happen soon. Those folks are not necessarily going to be immediately able to go back. Because what Russia is doing right now is they are targeting civilian infrastructure, right? So I've got, you know, a tough life in Poland right now with my, with my family as a Ukrainian refugee, but at least my kid is kind of in school and at least I have food. If I go back to Kharkiv and not only is my apartment building 
maybe even not there. There's no access to electricity and to clean water and to food. There's no economy. My job as an IT professional doesn't really exist anymore. Um, those make th- those sort of realities mean that people stay in displacement. They stay as refugees longer. And so that's sort of where this like protracted nature comes from. And, and I think it's, when I say protracted displacement is the new norm, it's because that's kind of how these situations have unfortunately been playing out. When you're talking about Syria, when you're talking about Venezuela, the crisis in those countries is is itself not ending quickly. Like wars are lasting longer, conflicts are lasting longer. But then the conflicts themselves are being more destructive, which means it's harder for people then to return even if they want to. Right. And uh, you just mentioned um, some some of these other humanitarian crises happening elsewhere. Do you see any differences or um, uh, differences, parallels, um, but specifically differences? Like what ma- what makes the Ukrainian crisis different um, and particularly the involvement of Russia? How how, how has that created particular obstacles for this population of refugees? Yeah, two separate questions. So I'll take the first um, is this is different. So normally what happens is when there is conflict, it's actually really hard for people to get across an international border. Right now there are countless Afghans who would love to leave, but combination of their passports are very weak right now. They they can't move. Pakistan doesn't want them. Iran doesn't want them. And they're not able to sort of go anywhere. They're caught between a rock and a hard place. And so what, what you have, and that's sadly the norm, is that, you know, people who are in war-torn countries uh, don't have the ability to leave those countries easily, which is why if you look at the global kind of forced displacement figures on UNHCR's website, you see it's over 80 million. Well, a good two-thirds of those are actually internally displaced, like people who have been forced from home but couldn't actually leave or, or perhaps didn't want to leave or for whatever reason did not leave their country. And so thus they are called IDPs or internally displaced people. And that's not actually what's happening in Ukraine. There's still millions of internally displaced people. It's really hard to know how many there are. There are already, you know, between 750,000 and a million and a half of them before Russia invaded on February 24th. So we know that there are probably millions at this point. It's real hard to know. We don't, again, those humanitarian corridors, like we don't have those yet. We don't have humanitarians operating freely. So it's hard to know how many we have. But this sort of over 3 million refugee figure means that in this case, unlike in the other cases that I've been talking about elsewhere in the world, there's probably actually more refugees than there are internally displaced people because Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, Moldova, they have opened up their borders, right? Um, And there's all sorts of you know, we can sit here and uh, discuss why that is, but I think it's um, it, it's it's different. Let's just say that these borders have been opened and have stayed open. We're three weeks now into this conflict, and the borders, by all estimations, are still open, at least for Ukrainians. Now, 
they haven't been as open to expats in Ukraine, um, Sub-Saharan Africans, South Asians. Um, they've had much more difficulty at the borders getting into places like Poland. Um, however, uh, the fact that these neighboring countries have kept their uh, kept their doors open and and not just open, but actually providing lots of assistance um, is certainly something that has uh, ha- has separated the Ukrainian displacement crisis from others around the world. Now, the presence of Russia on three sides, as you mentioned, I mean, if you look at a map of Ukraine to the north, it's Belarus and which is a vassal state of Russia, as I said, at this point, basically de facto. And then you've got Russia surrounding it. And then you've got the Black Sea. Um, and if, if Russia is on those three sides, sure, some people are going to flee conflict wherever they can. And sometimes, especially for people living on the Russian border, that might be into Russia. But if I'm a Ukrainian right now and I'm not a big fan of this Russian invasion, even at great risk to, my, to myself, Russia's probably the place of last resort for me. So in terms of resources available, how have states and humanitarian aid agencies agreed to take in refugees when such a large influx of refugees exist? Um, what does particularly the UN Refugee Agency tend to prioritize in their agendas? So the, the UN Refugee Agency usually, and the UN itself as a broader body, will usually do an appeal. They'll do kind of like, we've done an assessment um, of what the crisis is right now, the humanitarian crisis, the displacement crisis, and here's how many people we think are going to be affected. Here's the type of assistance we think they're going to need. And, and they do this utilizing you know, needs assessments, essentially. They talk to people, they look at the devastation, they look at what type of attacks are happening. And it's like, of course, nobody has a crystal ball, but you can, you can sort of educatedly guess what, um, what might be needed. And so they, they wrap all that up into an appeal. And at least from the UN refugee agency perspective, most of their funds, like if you and I go on to unhcr.org, we can donate. And I'm sure lots of people have, but most of their funds, uh, and, and sort of the, the way that these appeals are, are fulfilled, these appeals for, for money are fulfilled is through governments, um, UN member states, you know, the, the United States has for a long time been the largest funder of the UN refugee agency. Even during the Trump years, um, we maintained high levels of, of funding for the UN refugee agency. Uh, and it's sort of part of our, part of our ethos and our history. Um, and so, you know, whether it's the U S or Germany or the UK or Japan or Australia or others, you know, they're going to be called upon to say like, okay, here's what the needs are. Um, you know, will you dig into your pockets and, and provide, uh, these needs. Now the challenge for the UN refugee agency and really anybody who's trying to raise for humanitarian causes is that there's like, this is the crisis du jour, but that doesn't mean the existence of the Ukrainian displacement crisis as bad as it is, doesn't mean that other crises aren't as bad and have gone away. 
right? So like Af- I mentioned Afghanistan. Afghanistan is still one of the worst humanitarian crises. Yemen is still one of the worst humanitarian crises. There's a new crisis sort of rekindling in South Sudan. And so there's sort of a, a finite level of money, especially government money, that can go to uh, humanitarian causes. And so it's sort of like even though they would never say it like this, it's it's like these appeals almost compete with one another because there's never enough money to go around. Right. And you mentioned, um, I guess, sometimes a lack or shortage of resources and um, competition between appeals. But specifically in Ukraine, can we expect a shortage of resources anytime soon? How is the state doing with that? And has the UN Refugee Agency attempted to avoid any kind of catastrophe in general from happening? I think I don't have exact figures on what their appeal is and how much it's funded. Um, my sense is, my guess is that it will, this one will be one that, that if not fully funded, gets actually a higher proportion of funding in part because, and this is unfair, but this is a reality. Ukraine's proximity to the biggest donors to the refugee agency, geographic proximity um, to some of the biggest donors to the United Nations and to the United Nations Refugee Agency um, means that it's sort of front and center, right? Like the the coverage that has existed of the conflict in Ukraine, wall to wall, 24 hours, CNN, et cetera, um, that does happen in other places, but it's not, doesn't have the staying power and sort of like the emotional reaction. Um, and that matters because if you think about it, it's like, it's not the U.S. government, it's not this like amorphous U.S. government that is providing funding. It's Congress, right? And who is Congress? Yesterday, Vlad, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, spoke in front of a joint session of Congress. He did that very deliberately because Congress is made up of representatives from that represent Baltimore, Maryland, and Detroit, Michigan, and Dallas, Texas. And those are the folks who are going to allocate money. They, they're the ones who control the purse strings. It's up to the Biden administration to, to sort of determine the exact allocations in a lot of cases. But Congress can, and I would imagine probably will, um, you know, provide a lot of financial assistance that a lot of which will go to the UN Refugee Agency. It's a, it's a really well-regarded um, agency within the within the United States. And so I would imagine that um, funding appeals are never fully funded, but in this one, I'm ge- it's a long-winded way of saying, I'm guessing this one will probably get more support than, than others, despite the fact that the need elsewhere might even be greater um, than it is here. Right. And like you said, the funding seems to be larger despite the need being um, more significant elsewhere, perhaps. Um, and um, the, the the difference in reactions from different countries is sort of striking. And, and you see Poland handling, I, I don't know the exact numbers, it, it, it seems to be changing, but up to 90% of Ukrainian refugees, or, or at least most of Ukrainian refugees, which is sort of shocked the international community. Um, uh, say, if you compare its reaction to uh, the Syrian refugee crisis, 
So why do you believe this is? Could we have expected Poland to behave like this if um, this conflict was happening elsewhere? I mean, I think the answer is obviously no, but um, there's there's a couple of things that are happening here. One is that, you know, if you look back to the last sort of what Europe called the migration crisis of 2015, it was largely Syrians, Afghans, some sub-Saharan Africans who kind of came in mass um, to Western Europe. In mass, just to put it in context, a little bit is was actually around a million people over the course of a year. We've had three million Ukrainian refugees in three weeks. So um, that quote unquote crisis back in 2015 of primarily black and brown people um, was actually gave rise to, and there's lots of research on this. I'm not speaking out of school on this, gave rise to a lot of um, sort of far right uh, political movements, you know, AFD in Germany, the um, Swedish Democrats, et cetera, that sort of there was a backlash against that um, arrival of lots of vulnerable people. Um, were those people any less or more vulnerable than the Ukrainians? Everybody is has a level of vulnerability and in, in fact after journeying so far it could be i think rationally said that some of those folks were even more vulnerable um, and again i'm saying this not to diminish the plight of ukrainians like i think that they're going through obviously a, an incredibly hard time right now and i think all the support that they're getting is um is really great and, and and you know those countries should be applauded for it I think the other thing that's going on here is that, you know, Poland, which you mentioned, is getting the majority of, of Ukrainians right now. There's a couple of things. One is their neighbors, right? Like there's a lot of Ukrainians in Poland and a lot of Poles in Ukraine before February 24th. Um, they don't speak the same language, but a lot of Poles speak Ukrainian. A lot of Ukrainians speak Polish. There are cultural ties. There are religious ties. There are ethnic ties. Um and so when we think about displacement crises around the world, that's actually people go to where they have family members. They go, if they have a choice, which people are being forced from home, they, they didn't choose to be forced from home. But when they get on a train and go to Lviv, Lviv is in the western part of Ukraine. They can either then try to go to Slovakia. Maybe they have family in Slovakia. Or they can go to Poland. Maybe they have family in Poland. Um, and so... You know there is a little bit of agency that people have and they tend to choose places that that there are ties right um and so i think poland um has sort of this connection to ukraine that it, it perhaps did not have with some of these other places it's uh, you know i've heard lots of talk of of what is behind that but i think that's my you know sober decaffeinated analysis the last thing i'll say is that when you think about Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Rom Romania, less so Moldova, but when you think about those, the sort of EU countries that are on the receiving end, um, these are pretty economically developed, sophisticated economies. You know, uh, they're not always well-run governments. Um, you know, Viktor Orban in Hungary is is. Um, you know, I wouldn't exactly say that he's an enlightened political leader in so many ways, but 
there's there's at least some level of like absorption capacity of um uh, of people right and so if you think about um Poland, like they need the the UNHCR and others need to provide humanitarian assistance to Ukrainians, but also Poland has a lot of its own capacity that it can allocate to this place. So it's not completely reliant on humanitarian assistance and aid. And so all, all the more reason why they've, I think, been able to to keep open their borders and and provide uh, the assistance that they provided. Now, to wrap up, how, if any way, do you believe that this conflict will change the outlook on the future refugee crises, um, both in Europe and abroad? And should we expect the UNHCR's legitimacy to change in accordance with their response? Or do you believe it will remain um, within its normal power on the international refugee system? I I think, I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for my friends and colleagues that work at at HCR, these are really hard jobs. Um, you know, having spent a lot of time in and around refugee camps and in displacement scenarios myself uh, over the course of my career, it's not. It's these are not easy jobs, um, and you don't do it for the money. You do it because you really want to help. Um, and I think that, and they've sort of proven over time that they um, are good stewards of donor money. You know, the money is going to support people as much as it possibly can. And so I think that there, that legitimacy existed before February 24th. And I think will, if anything, be strengthened by their, by their response, um, in, in Eastern Europe right now. I think that, um, what can we learn more broadly or what should we learn again, back to this sort of open borders idea, um, or, or borders being open to vulnerable, uh, forcibly displaced people. I think that's something that we should learn, right? Like people, I think there's this sense again on sort of the, perhaps in sort of the right wing media ecosystem and political ecosystem that these people are just using the crisis or using wars to sort of leave and, and seek out a better future, et cetera. And look, there, there might be one or two people where that's the case, but like these people that have left Ukraine are not choosing to leave Ukraine. Um, the, these people are being forced to leave. Um, and I think the fact that they have a place to go and again, life is hard for them in Poland, but it's at least safe. Um, that's, I think a lesson that we need to learn for displacement crises everywhere, right? When there is war, we need to provide innocent civilians the the ability to find safety and security. If that can be within their country, then that's great. The closer people are to where they, they come from, sort of the easier it is for them to go back. Although, as I mentioned before, it's still hard. But in so many of these cases, whether it's Syria or Myanmar or Venezuela or Congo, like they're not able to go back. And so giving them someplace to go, as is the case for Ukrainians in Poland and Slovakia and Hungary and Czechia and Romania, giving them a place to go should always be the goal. Errol, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. 
We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.